All right. Um, I called this, uh, and you'll, you'll understand, I think, looking at these last two verses especially, uh, one, one shepherd, one flock. Uh, for a number of reasons, it's not necessarily the main point of this passage, um, but I think partly I, partly I ran out of titles because we've, all of this has been about faith, right? Uh, it's all been about, not you, but also you. Um, it's been about faith, uh, and it's been about the faith of the people of God. Uh, And, you know, the passage um, from John chapter 10 sort of came to my mind. Uh, As Jesus told the the people of Israel that he's preaching to, he says, you know, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I'm going to make you all one flock with one shepherd. And that, of course, takes your mind back to, I hope anyway, takes your mind back to Ezekiel. And uh, to the fact that God said, you know, your shepherds are wicked and lazy or you shepherds are wicked and lazy, and for that reason, I'm going to come and I'm going to shepherd my people myself. And so that's why I chose this particular title, uh, based on the unity that we see uh, emphasized in the last few verses of this chapter, uh, as I have here. Um, again, I want to remind you, you know, as, as we've been going through chapter 11, uh, that it's about what it, what it means to live by faith. And the author of Hebrews is preaching all these different people, uh, all these Old Testament saints, uh, to help the, uh, the church that he's writing to, um, to persevere by faith. And so what does it mean to live by faith is a constant thing that we want to have running in our minds, running through our minds as we look at this chapter. So since biblical faith is trusting in God's word as eternally, reliably true, then living by faith is making conscious daily decisions based primarily or firstly on what God has revealed to be true in His Word, rather than on your circumstances, um, feelings, uh, reason again, and I, I put it in, in quotes because we don't have air quotes. I think we should have, have air quotes, so we can put that around there, but that's the purpose. Um, because the world reasons, but much of the world that rejects God reasons by a faulty logic. Right? If, you begin, if your beginning premise is there is no God, then whatever knowledge you build on top of that is going to be faulty. It's not going to be right because you've based all this on there is no God. So, um, rather than on faulty reasoning or on the consensus of the unbelieving culture that surrounds us. So, let's read the passage together, uh, and then I want to give you five points that I felt like were really important from that passage uh, and close up with a few um, Parting thoughts on faith from this chapter. What more shall we say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Um, I'm only going to make a couple comments as we go through this before we get to the main points. But one of the comments that I wanted to make was right here. He says, what more should I say? What more shall I say? I don't have time to talk about all this. The time would fail me to go into all these details. Um, and so it, it's almost as if the author is saying by this point, as he wraps up this section where he's talking about these heroes of faith from the Old Testament, you know, what more do I have to tell you? How, you know, how many other uh, witnesses does Scripture contain about men and women who live by faith? Look at all these examples. And he's going to do that in the beginning of chapter 12. Look at all these examples. I don't have time to go into all of this for you. 
It reminds me, every time I, I look at a sermon, and as I work through the week, as I spend a little time each day working on the preparation, I find detail upon detail upon detail that I could never share with you or we'd be here till next Sunday. Like there's so much. Scripture is so full of examples of men and women that live by faith. And little, the little ways that God revealed himself to them in very personal ways. And not just that, but all of 2,000 years of church history contains other heroes of the faith. We don't have necessarily their biography in the same scriptural format where every detail we can trust is absolutely true, but we have the general idea and the testimony of their lives and their faith, right? What more can we say? Look at all these examples and follow their examples of faith. They gained what was promised. Um, They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword. Whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured. I want you to notice this shift. I'm not going to probably talk about it later, so I want you to notice this shift. Up until this part in verse 35, we see a bunch of positive and big sort of things that are encouraging, right? I mean, wouldn't you like to have your weakness turned to strength at a, at a poignant moment? Wouldn't you like to be powerful in battle? There's not, a, there's not a man in this room who hasn't, as a child, read the Bible stories and imagined themselves to be David or Gideon or Ehud or any one of these fantastic guys who, who were warriors in battle or David and Goliath or you know, any of these heroes that we look at. Um, everybody wants to experience these type of highs, these type of powerful, wonderful moments. Um, it reminds me of a, a Dr. Seuss book, uh, Oh, the Places You'll Go. And he says, you know, he's talking about all these positive moves. And he's like, and you know, when you're winning and when you're the best, and then he says, when you succeed above all the rest, and then he goes, but except sometimes you won't because sometimes you don't. And then he talks about the negative side. And we see this shift, this a similar shift here. Like, look at all these powerful things that happened through these men and women of faith, through these heroes of the Old Testament. Sometimes they were tortured. Refusing to be released that they might gain an even better resurrection. And I wonder here if he's not talking about those early people that were lost in the, uh, in, in the early persecutions. Um, it certainly fits the story of, of uh, early Greek Christians who had moved away from pagan, uh, the, the Roman pantheon uh, of gods and had believed in Christ. And they were taken into custody and they were, they were forced or they were trying to be forced to renounce their faith. And they refused. But whatever specific people he's talking about, it would of course include those people as well, and everybody who's done so since. Refusing to renounce Christ, because they knew that even if they didn't get released in this life, they had a hope of a better life after the resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, they were, sought in, they were sought in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. 
Um, I want to take just a moment here. I probably should have put the correction in there. With destitute, persecuted, and mistreated, I think the, um, the NIV gives us the impression of two types of mistreatment or persecution. And I think the ESV kind of does a better job. Uh, I think the ESV says destitute, um, afflicted, and persecuted, or and mistreated. And the picture is that, um, I think at least with one of these, is that affliction can come in many forms. Um, it can come from outward persecution, uh, whether by a government or whether by uh, the Jews who had not received Christ, received the gospel, and believed uh, in Jesus as the Messiah, uh, or, or whether it came, like I say, government or, or from any source. Um, but then there's also affliction. And as we look back at these Old Testament saints, a lot of them we see had regular afflictions that they dealt with. Some were more emotional, right? Um, with these spiritual highs and lows that we saw in Elijah and Elisha's life, um, especially Elijah, right after, the, right after Mount Carmel, and he has this spiritual low. And so, you know, all types of affliction would fall into here. Here, it, we look at persecuted and mistreated, and we think it's only coming from outside. And I don't think that's the impression that the author of Hebrews is trying to give us. So, um, poverty, mistreatment, and then just normal affliction and trials of life that don't necessarily come from a person, but just come from the fact that you're living in a cursed world. He says, they were, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. We're going to get to that sort of somewhat enigmatic sta- uh, statement at the end, um, but we're going to go through and talk about what this is all about, what this section is all about. Again, I remind you that this whole section is about faith and about persevering in the faith. And so that's, I don't want to miss that. I don't want to get lost in the details of these heroes of the faith and forget that the big point of listing all these people is not every lesson they learned in their life necessarily. Although you as a follower of Jesus could go back and examine it and certainly learn from their lives. But the point is to persevere in the faith because God has always been faithful to all of his people. God has been faithful to pour out grace and mercy and love and power in the lives of those who trust in him and follow him by faith. And the author is using all of these Old Testament saints to urge the church that he's writing to. And God is using his words to urge us and every other Christian who's read these words for the last 2,000 years to learn these lessons and persevere by faith. If you get nothing out, if you zonk out from here on out, pay attention to these heroes. Because they were ordinary men and women who lived lives just like you in many cases. And they lived by faith. And they were commended because they lived by faith. But all of that was under the grace and the mercy and the power and the love of God. I don't want to miss those two things. So the first of these big picture points that I saw in the passage, was that the saints of the past were deeply flawed people of faith. But God saved many lives and preserved Israel by their faith in action. So he names several people, and I want to just give us some highlights from these people's lives. I'm not going to go into great detail. But first he mentions Gideon. Now, God used Gideon to save Israel from the people of Midian. There were some other enemies that Midian sort of joined in with. I think the Amalekites were part of that as well. But 
you know, when you look at the numbers in Gideon, I think there's like, uh, in Judges rather, there's like three chapters there where we can look at what happened with Gideon. And um, I think it's six through 10 maybe. Um, anyway, so the people of Midian were, were overpowering uh, Israel. They were coming in and they were taking the harvest. Um, they were just coming in, camping next to the people, taking the harvest. They're letting their flocks roam through the land and eat all that belonged uh, to Israel. And the people were suffering greatly. And God used Gideon uh, to defeat, at one point, over 100,000 people. Now, I don't know if this is just in the whole campaign, because the numbers aren't mentioned till later, or if it's a combination of battles. But at one point, he says, there were only 15,000 of the enemy people left, and because 120,000 men had fallen, fallen already, enemy soldiers. And you remember the story that Gideon did this with 300 men. I personally think that the historians uh, stole that idea of 300 and used it for the, the Spartans at Thermopylae. Um, but I'm telling you, those guys all lost and Gideon and his men survived. So even if there were 300 at Thermopylae, they all died. And God gave victory to these 300. Um, so, you know, amazing, beautiful thing. But Gideon was deeply flawed, wasn't he? Even after receiving this initial sign when the angel of the Lord first came to him, even afterwards when God sent him out, and he had seen God's power in doing this, the Spirit of the Lord was with him. And God says, go out against the, Midian, the, the people of Midian. And he goes, um, could you give me a sign to make sure that you know, you're really going to give me the victory? And he's like, yeah. Uh, could you give me another sign? He was deeply flawed. Barak. Barak is going up, I think it was 10,000 uh, uh, soldiers. And Deborah, the prophetess, is the one who sends him. You know, he's like, God wants you to go. And he goes, okay, I'll go, but only if you go with me. And, you know, maybe we, we, we think, oh, maybe we read this wrong. But Deborah goes, no, because of this course of action that you're taking, you know, God's still going to give the victory, but the glory is going to go to a woman. She's going to be the one who's actually going to kill Sisera. He was... You know, I, don't, I want to give him a little credit because if there was a prophet of God, I would probably want the prophet to go with me as well. I would feel more comfortable with the prophet around. But the point was that he didn't just believe the word by faith, right? He also needed some extra. He was flawed. Samson, he delivered Israel from the Philistines. He accomplished incredible feats of strength, killing over a thousand people at once. One fight, and he kills a thousand people. And what's he do? He complains to God. Oh, you helped me kill all these guys, but now I'm going to die of thirst. Almost like a thanks a lot, you know, now I'm going to die kind of an attitude. He, he, I don't know the right word, but he sort of just threw aside casually the Nazarite vows that he was born under. Finally, giving away the secret of his, the last secret of his strength, which was his hair, and having it cut all off. Um, commentators, preachers through the years have thought, man, it's almost like Samson started to trust in himself. But as flawed as Samson was, he was a judge of Israel, and God saved many lives and preserved Israel through him. And he's commended as having faith. A flawed faith, but he had faith in the right one. Jephthah. Now you guys, I don't know if you guys know this story or not, but check it out in, in Judges. I can't remember the chapter right offhand. But Jephthah, 
you know, he leads um, Israel to victory against the Ammonites. Um, and in Judges 11, uh, 12 through 28, I'm not going to read it now. It would take too much time. But in that account, the, the king of the Ammonites, you know, he writes to the king of Ammonites after the people make him their ruler. And he goes, you know, how come you guys are going against this, this, this city and trying to take our land? And the guy says, no way. When Moses came up, they stole this land from us. Jephthah recites the history. Look at, look at Judges 11, 12 through 28, and read how he recites the history as if he's reading it from the law of Moses about how the people came up and about how they ended up taking that land and how it wasn't from the Ammonites. It was from other people. And it wasn't that they just went out and took it. It was that the people came out and attacked them, and that's how God gave the land to their hands. He knew the history of Israel. He accomplishes a great victory, and then what happens? He makes this rash vow you know, God, if you'll, if you'll help me, then when I come back, the first thing that runs out of my house, I'll sacrifice to you. And he kills his only daughter. Deeply flawed man, David. The Philistines, the giant. Wars upon wars upon wars. But what's he do? He commits adultery. He commits murder. He ignores the rape of, of his daughter allows his son to go unpunished, creates havoc in his house, all sorts of things fall apart. He's a deeply flawed man who trusted in God by faith. Samuel, only the only thing we have really negative about Samuel is that he raised a couple of heathen boys. Apparently he didn't, uh, he didn't practice discipline enough. I think my son just looked at me with a worried look. We were... We will discipline. We won't raise heathens. <clears throat> if we do, they'll be law-abiding heathens. Um, and the prophets, you know, he doesn't necessarily go into the flaws of all the prophets, but if you look through all the prophets, you will inevitably find flaws. God used deeply flawed people to preserve life, to display his faithfulness, his grace, his power, his mercy. And to accomplish his will. You can almost hear the author of Hebrews say, look at all these messed up people and the great things God did through them. Persevere. Keep going. Secondly, God used the prophets to turn his people towards repentance. And I'm going to read a section for us from Judges chapter 6. Just one of the many unnamed prophets of Israel. This is after the Midianites began to, um, to overrun Israel. And before Gideon gets called uh, on the scene by God, by the angel of the Lord. And in verse 7 of chapter 6, it says, When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you, and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. God sent the prophets to explain the problems of the day. This is why your lives are falling apart, Israel. Because you've turned away from God and you're worshiping idols. And the heart of that message is still preached and has been preached for 2,000 years. Right? the heart of the message that most preachers preach at some point or another is 
turn away from those things in your life which are not God's, that is God-ordained for you, for your growth and for the glory of his name, turn away from those things and trust in the Lord. People have been preaching that for a thousand years, two thousand years. There are so many unnamed prophets in the Old Testament. I love, I, I want to try to take note one time and maybe just make a list of all the men of God or prophets or messengers that are clearly not angels or probably not angels in the Old Testament and just make a list and just meditate on them because most of us are unknown as far as in the world. Most of us are unknown to the world, but we are not unknown and not unimportant to God. God knows exactly who this guy was. And he used him in the same way he did Samuel, except we have Samuel's name, we don't have his. Right? Later on, in, I think it's 1 Samuel chapter 7, there Samuel is preaching to the whole people at Mizpah. The Philistines are on their way to destroy him. And he goes, turn back to God. Get rid of your idols and God's going to give you a great victory. And what happened? God gave a fantastic, wonderful, miraculous victory. He turned the people into confusion and it looks like one of those times when they fought themselves. And then Israel was sort of able to run in and mop up afterward. But through these prophets, these unknown people... God did many miracles and he displayed his mercy and his grace and he confirmed the divine origin of their words. Thirdly, the Old Testament saints often suffered, but they did, not, uh, but they did so in faith, believing in the final resurrection and a better life after. And that's what he, that's what he tells us here um, when, he, when he talks about all these things that, that happened about their suffering, right? I told you about that turning point of suffering where it went from great deeds to to great suffering. He says, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. The author of Hebrews is writing to a church that has suffered and will continue to suffer. Some of them maybe even in the future after having received this letter would have to suffer to death. Would have to make a similar choice to what he talks about here when he says, you know, either renouncing the faith or being put to death. And they chose death. They chose not to, be, not to renounce the faith and, 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 and be uh, released. But rather to suffer and die with the people of God for the sake of the name of Jesus. So again, he's, he's writing to a people who they were not experiencing necessarily those miraculous highs that many of the Old Testament saints saw in their life. And they only re- looked back and remembered the miracles that God did confirming the word of, the, of the, the apostles who were sent to them with the gospel. But he says, persevere even though you suffer. Because there is a resurrection and a better life after. The world was not worthy of people like this. Well, why? Right? This is what he says. He says the world was not worthy of them. They went about poor, persecuted, and suffering. I I would say that he's meaning uh, that they were persecuted from outside, like I said earlier, and also suffering normal afflictions of living in a sin-cursed world. The world was not worthy of people like this. 
who persevered by faith in spite of the suffering and the poverty. Well, why? Right? What does he mean by the world is not worthy? Um, I, I wanted to sum it up this way. In his abundant mercy and grace, God used all these saints as witnesses against wicked nations and individuals all in their time, right? You could start with uh, Moses and work your way forward. And he used these men and women as witnesses against wicked nations and individuals who did not deserve the opportunity to repent. Not to mention the fact that that they also, those who were heroes of the faith, didn't deserve to hear the message and repent by faith either. But God gave this continual witness through their life for as long as they lived, each one of them, or as short as they lived, as a testimony of his grace and his mercy and his willingness to forgive. And none of those people deserve the opportunity to repent. And none of us deserve the opportunity to repent. And yet in his grace and his mercy... He chose you, just like he chose them. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's like, look, the world is not worthy of people like this. You're not worthy of the grace and mercy that God has poured out on you through Jesus Christ. But he has given it to you. Can you almost hear the exhortations coming? I want you to live like that. I want to live like that. I want to live as an example, as a witness of God's mercy and grace and faithfulness to a wicked world, even if they ultimately reject him. Because that's, what all, that's how God has used all these Old Testament saints. God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I think there's at least three things here um, you know, I, I suppose somebody could argue with the way I've nuanced them, and that's fine. Uh, we could talk about it, but I think these will be helpful for us. One, God had provided something better. Those Old Testament saints, yes, they had the Word of God, but they had prophecy about a Messiah to come, about a future event, right? And so what does this church that he's writing to have that's better than that? They have a fully realized a Messiah who has come. We don't have a Messiah prophesied about the future who will come. We have a more sure prophetic word because it actually happened. Right? The Messiah came. He was exactly like God prophesied in the Old Testament. He came at just the right time. He did just the right things. He accomplished all that God had, uh, had said he would. And then through his life and his death and his resurrection... All that was a mystery before was revealed. Because as you look back at the Old Testament, without the New Testament, you can see hints at a lot of stuff that would happen, but until Jesus comes, you can't really see the fullness of it. And so the, this church, they had something better than the Old Testament saints. They had a Messiah who had come and had done all that he was promised and had revealed so much more about who God was in the Old Testament saints ever had. And then, the Old Testament saints had a salvation that was promised, a sacrificial atonement that was promised and hinted at through their system of sacrifice. And God did make a way for those people to be made right with Him. But it was not complete until Jesus came and He died. 
the substance had not been sacrificed until Jesus was dead. And so they had not just an atonement promised and hinted at and and painted. They had a real, solid, effective, accomplished atonement. Completed. And if they did, we more so. Not that he's more so completed the atonement, but that we have even more testimony than they did. God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And I think there's two elements to this that we don't want to ignore. One is that those Old Testament saints, without the atonement, as I kind of already said in the last slide, they never would have actually been made complete, made whole, made like Christ, made without sin, raised above any uh, suspicion or reproach or accusation from the devil. They would not have been made actually holy without an actual atonement. And secondly, without the elect, uh, all of the elect, then the will and the promises of God would not have been brought to completion. And that's another reason why I chose the, the title that I did. One shepherd, one flock. We are all a part of that one flock who have trusted in Christ. All of us together. I don't know about you, But that brings me so much comfort because I look at my life, I look at anonymity, I look at the type of suffering that I go through. It's, most of it is not related directly to the gospel. Most of it is just ordinary living in a sin-cursed world and trying to hang on. I don't feel, and I'm guessing most of you don't feel like you're heroes or examples of faith. Rather, you think you're like more of the by the skin of your teeth variety. Like hanging on day after day. But we're all part of one flock. I'm sure there will be a distinction of rewards. I don't know exactly how that's going to be parsed out. But we're all one flock. With an eternal inheritance. An eternal reward. And without all of, you know, the the writer of Hebrews, he says, without all those guys, uh, or without us, those old guys would not have, uh, those old saints would not be brought to completion as in one flock, one Israel, God's people. And without us, they wouldn't be complete either. No matter how small your faith is, no matter how important you think you are, or how effective you think you are, we're lumped in with them, with our one shepherd, Jesus Christ. So as we kind of reflect on this chapter shouldn't have said final reflections on faith. I should have said final reflections on chapter 11. But as we look at the final reflections, I wanted to remind you what it was said at the beginning. Uh, he said in, in, chapter, or in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 11, he said, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Do we have that kind of faith as we examine our lives? Do we have the kind of faith the ancients had? Again, it's not the kind of faith that accomplishes great things necessarily or that's guaranteed to make you some sort of hero or big star or somebody's thinking about you in church history to come. It's probably not the case. But are you going to hang on? Are you going to endure? Are you going to endure suffering? Are you going to persevere through doubts? 
Will you endure? Will you have faith like these heroes? Secondly, the author used all these saints to encourage his church. And now we have observed both groups. We have much more reason, so many more testimonies over the last 2,000 years of faithful people. So in the second of these reflections, I would just urge you, persevere. You have even more witnesses than they had. You know, in chapter 12, he's going to say, since we have this, you know, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, you have a bigger cloud of witnesses. You have a bigger crowd of witnesses. You have more testimonies. You know, just the, the theological developments that have happened within the church over the last 2,000 years are awesome. That God has revealed so much more about the, 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 the scripture that we have even over the last 2,000 years, that we are privileged to, just by picking up books, just by having pastors that have been educated, who've been educated over the, through that 2,000 years of history. The theological understandings have been come to. We have so much more. So persevere. Thirdly, God used these people to warn people about their sin, to preach repentance, to preach Christ, to preach the gospel, to display His love and His mercy and His grace, to encourage each other, and in so many other ways. He's used them. How is he using you? As you look at these heroes of the faith, and I hope you'll do that this week, and look at their lives, look through the book of Judges and 1 Samuel, and and look at how God used these, these heroes of the faith, and ask yourself, am I doing what I can to glorify God and display his good character in my life? Fourthly, and this is really kind of a restatement of that. God is faithful in all he says and all he does. Will you be faithful? Um, I was debating on how to close this up, but then as we were doing our practice this morning, uh, there was a line uh, from the song uh, that we're going to sing here in a minute. Uh, and he says uh, in the second verse, he says, The body of our Savior, Jesus Christ, torn for you, Eat and remember. And here in a few minutes we're going to take communion. The body of our Savior Jesus Christ. Torn for you. Eat and remember. The wounds that heal the death that brings us life. Paid the price to make us one. That unity that he talks about in the end of chapter 11. That without all of us together. The will and the promises and the plan of God would not be made complete. You know, as Paul says in, I think it's in Romans 11, you know, there's this full number of Gentiles that will come in so that Israel will all be one. And I think he's talking about Israel as in the united Israel, not specific nation Israel, but that aside, there's one flock with one shepherd. And we are all part of that plan. Um, and that, to me, is just a wonderful encouragement that when Jesus died and when he said you know, to his disciples, you know, do this in remembrance of me. He was talking also to us who have put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. So, I hope you will take these exhortations that we are going to be looking at uh, from this point on. Uh, there will be much more pointed ex- uh, exhortations. There will be some general and some pointed exhortations. And I hope that we will all be pay- paying close attention so that we live the life that God has enables us to live through the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can bring him glory, so that we can be part of other people being brought into this flock. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you have done through us, done for us through Jesus Christ, and what you will do through us, through our lives, through our testimony, 
uh, through our, our choices for the rest of this local church, for other churches that we interact with, for other believers that we interact with, through, uh, through even unbelievers that we interact with, and somehow you're going to use our 